So I know uh, many of you are really into personality tests. This is one of the big things I feel like right now, and so many of you are into the Enneagram, which is so great for you. Um, I mean, it's great for everyone, right? Um, I, I apparently, when people that love the Enneagram love to talk about the Enneagram. Uh, my wife has read the book and is super into it right now. I've heard many of you, there's these discussions that happens. I'm a one, there you go, now you know me. Um, but uh, one of the other ones that I feel like a lot, a lot of people like, you know, we got Myers-Briggs, we got all these things, but Strengths Finders is one of the ones that I found to be, be really helpful over time. I know UCF for a while was doing this for all their graduates. It's one that many of you have done. And one of my strengths, um, one of my top ones in there is Learner, which was really helpful. Rachel was describing to Doris the other day why I get my phone out all the time to look things up. It's not just because I'm rude, though maybe that's part of it and I need to work on that. Um, but a lot of it is that I want to be able to find out when I hear something or I don't know something, I want to look it up. I want to know everything about it. I just constantly want to learn more. And so as in preparation uh, for the sermon, one of the things that caught my interest and in, then hours of Googling afterwards were about eyes and facts about our eyes. And I just kept reading and learning about them. And so today you get to step into my brain. So here we go. Facts about eyes. Eyes are super fascinating. And I don't know how much time you've ever thought about them, but I had not until this week. So here we are. Um, an eye is composed of more than 2 million working parts. An eye cannot be transplanted. There are more than 1 million nerve fibers that connect each eye to the brain, and currently we're not able to reconstruct those connections. Had no idea. 40 million, or more than 1 million. This one I thought was super interesting. A fingerprint has 40 unique characteristics. We use that all the time to unlock our phones. You probably use them at work and stuff. But an iris has 256. It's the reason retina scans are increasingly becoming more popular for using for security purposes. Eyes are the second most complex organ after the brain. Uh, the eye muscles are the most active muscles in the human body, which is especially true for me. Um, that was a joke. There we go. You can laugh. Um, I give you permission. Uh, the human eye can see 500 shades of gray. In the right conditions and lighting, humans can see the light of a candle 14 miles away. That one was really something. But you think about that when we do like the Christmas Eve service and the room is completely dark and you light one candle, what happens in the room is pretty amazing. Um, your eyes contain 7 million cones, which help you see color and detail, as well as 100 million cells called rods, which help you to see better in the dark. This one is really interesting. The muscles in the eye are 100 times stronger than they need to be to perform their function. About half of our brain is dedicated to vision and seeing. And this one was just, I love it when ancient history comes back up in some of these things. The phrase, it's all fun and games until someone loses an eye, comes from ancient Rome, as the only rule for their bloody wrestling matches was no eye gouging. In ancient Rome, in the midst of all of that culture, the one thing that they thought was so important were their eyes. They recognized the value of them. And eyes can be super helpful, right? We use them all the time. They help us sense danger. They help us see beauty. They help us do all of these different things. Um, after our trip to Malawi this summer, after we had served for a couple of weeks, a handful of us stayed afterwards and went to Zambia and we went on safari. And it was one of those things, we didn't do a lot of research into it. We just heard, hey, this place has lots of animals. You should go there. We're like, great. So we loaded up, took the bus over, someone drove us over and we get there. And within a few minutes of us arriving, we went on our first safari drive and we get in the truck and, and this other couple ends up with us. We had kind of our six people from our team and this other couple and this guy had been on safaris all over Africa and he was like freaking out. He's like, I'm here to see a leopard. We're like, oh, is that, is that like a big deal? He's like, 
it is the biggest deal ever. So we're getting excited because this guy's mind is being blown. And it's always fun when you're around someone whose mind is being blown like the whole time. And so we're like looking for leopards and leopard guy is just like peering out. So the first night we see a leopard and it was awesome, right? He's up in the tree eating. And we're like, this is the greatest thing ever. We didn't even know it was so great. Now it's so great. So the next morning we went out and, and, and immediately we saw a leopard. We're like, how unique is this leopard thing? Um, but like he went by the truck and we lost him in the woods and, and our driver's like, now be very quiet keep your eyes out for the leopard. And I was like, I'm going to find the leopard because I'm, I'm in the leopards now. This is my thing. So I'm looking, I'm scanning. I'm like, I remember my dad always being able to spot deer on the side of the road. I'm like, I'm going to be my dad finally. And I did. I saw him cross the path. I'm like, he's there, he's there. And the driver's like, all right. So he goes, he follows where I pointed. And sure enough, the leopard came out just feet away from us. And it was awesome. He was like right there, feet away. And we got to see him like walk across our path. That night, we saw another leopard. Um, <laughs> You know, so maybe this place, either they have an abundance of leopards or they're just not that big of a deal. But it was pretty cool though, because we were kind of hunting with this leopard and we lost him. And all of a sudden, Rachel, my wife was sitting next to me. We were in the back of the truck this time and she just whispers, it's behind us. And sure enough, the leopard was right behind us. Rachel had spotted the leopard. So Aldrich for the win. Um, <laughs> but we have eyes for a purpose, right? Our eyes help us see things. Our eyes help us detect things or they're great. And looking is good. Uh, we are designed to find things attractive. We're designed to see beauty in the world. We're designed to see things. We're designed to be able to take it in, to be able to recognize the things going on in our world. But looking is also a lot like anger. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about anger being a transition emotion. It is a helpful transition, but it is not a destination emotion. Anger is a helpful place to lead us to somewhere else, but if you sit in it, it's where the trouble starts happening. And the same thing with looking is there looking is helpful. It sends signals, but staying there can often be dangerous. Because what are you looking at? And how are you looking at? Especially when it comes to people, how are you looking at other people? Are you, are you looking? Are you taking in information or are you staring? Are, are, are you focusing on, on someone to take ownership of them? Are you trying to possess something that isn't yours? Are you taking the time to not just see other people, but to be able to lock in on them so much that you are then trying to take power over another person. Because the thing is, is when we do that with other people, and it especially happens across genders as we see one another, it, it actually is taking something. It's not just a look. It's actually taking possession of something that isn't ours. It's actually where we get the phrase stealing glances from. Um, we are literally stealing things from other people when we linger, taking something that belongs to someone else. We're, we're trying to put power of ourselves over other people. And so our eyes, though they are, can be good and they can take in so much, they can also often lead us astray. And God knows this. Continually as we go through these series, as we go through this, God knows us. He knows how we're wired. He knows who we are. He knows how we're gonna respond. He wired us up and he knows what creation is like after the fall. He knows all this and God wants what's best for us. And it's why we've been spending this year in the life of Jesus so that we could know him better. And it's why we're spending the time on the Sermon on the Mount. Over these last few weeks, we have started on the Sermon on the Mount and we're working from top to bottom through it. And today we continue on, but as a refresher, in case you haven't been around or you're catching up, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is with his disciples and he's teaching them. His guys are gathered around on the side of a mountain and we seem to see a picture of some other people being close by as well, receiving this teaching. But he wants them to have this picture of what his new way of life 
would look like. They have given up everything. They have followed him along. And he starts to tell them what this is going to look like. And he begins by, with the Beatitudes. Blessed are you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He wants them to understand fully that blessed are those who understand their need for God. Because if you know who you are, you know whose you are, and you are in the proper relationship with God, the rest flows properly. So often we put ourselves above, above God. So often we let everything be about us. And God says, no, if you flip it around, if you understand your deep need for me, the rest of life flows properly through it. And then he moves into the second part of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who love one another. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who care for other people because understanding your right relationship with God helps you to care for others. He then continued on and said, you are the salt and the light of the world. You are the hope for the world. And when you stay close to Jesus, when you remain salty, when you remain close to me, I will make you light to the world, help them see you. And again, it's why we spent this year in the life of Jesus. We believe that if you get an accurate picture of Jesus, you will be so attracted to him. You will be so desirous of being near to him that you will have no choice but to be light when you're near and then we come to this section on commands. Two weeks ago, we talked about anger and what do we do with anger and enemies. And at their heart, these commands are about how we care for one another. They are about other people. So much of the Sermon on the Mount is how we care for one another. It's how we care not only for those that are inside the church. He's talking to his disciples and telling them, here's what it will look like if you care for each other. But also about how we care for those who are outside of the walls of the church. How to care for those who are outside of the community. He shares with them how we follow Jesus and exhibits this difference to the world matters. The commands are about how we elevate the dignity of others. The commands share how we would take the old law that protected people that now goes beyond just protection, but to promoting people and how we care for them at the highest level. And the commands continually bring us back to our deep need for Jesus because in following them, we find out that these commands, these ways of life are not natural in fact, they are supernatural. They demand an, an, a different level of living. They demand a close relationship with Jesus to even be able to follow them because they are a supernatural way of living. This is why he tells us to let our anger lead to resolution with others, to respond in surprising ways to the offenses leveled upon us in our daily lives, to love and pray for our enemies. These are why these commands are there, not only to care deeply for other people, but to drive us back to him as well. And today we see that he elevates the dignity of others and how we use our eyes to see others, how we honor our marriages and how we care for each other. So today we're gonna be in Matthew 5, verses 27 through 32. And we're gonna start with this first passage in 27 through 30. And we're gonna see this pattern emerge again. It's a pattern that we've been talking about for a couple of weeks. Jesus takes an Old Testament law that they knew that they followed that was a good law when it was written and he expands it. He takes it and gives it a new meaning. He fulfills it. It gives it a fuller meaning. And that if we hear it clearly, will drive us back to him because we realize that we cannot do it on our own. And then he gives us steps to live. So here we have in verses 27 through 30, hear these words. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble... Gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This section 
is tough. It's harsh. It's clear. He doesn't pull a lot of punches in here, but he does follow the pattern. He begins with the old law. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, which was a great law. Don't break the marriage covenant. Don't take someone out of that. There seems to be a very real sense that this was happening a lot at the time. And he needed, in the Old Testament, there was a way and a protection put around this marriage covenant. It was put around people so that it wouldn't happen. So he elevates it. He says, it's not just that. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery within his heart. He takes this old law that was good and says, no, it's, it's much deeper than that. It's much more than just the act. It's just even the looking. It's even the desiring. It's even the staring. It's even the taking the ownership. It's even putting someone beneath you in such a way that is a problem. And, he, and he's talking about this idea of staring, this idea of lingering, of staying on that, of wanting to take possession, of wanting to own, of wanting to put the other person beneath you for your needs. It's not just looking. Again, when we looked at anger, he acknowledges anger happens, but it leads to something else. And in the same way, looking happens, our eyes are good, but what happens? What do we do with them? You know, when you go to the mall and you happen to walk by um, Auntie Anne's or, what, or the, the cookie, Mrs. Fields cookies, and you smell the chocolate chip cookies, that's a natural thing, right? It's delicious and you're excited and you smell it. It's quite different if you go over and take the cookie and give it a big whiff and then place it back on the pattern. You have already expressed ownership of that cookie, whether you have taken it or not. You see, the smelling of the cookie is okay. That is a natural thing. It is a part of our senses, but the actual taking it and holding it is quite different. We know the difference. It happens in your break rooms when you smell the banana bread. It's quite different when you take the big woof, whiff of it. Woof, whiff, whatever. That's all good, right? You see, it's, lust is like anger in that it seeks power over another person. Both anger and lust put other people down, though in seemingly contradictory ways and opposite emotions than you would expect because anger does it by hatred and puts the other person down whereas lust puts them down by desire people are used in both ways and not in the ways they were intended a quote i came across that i thought was super helpful said to look at an attractive person can be a drive given in creation to keep on looking staring is a drive given in the fall the desire to possess someone or at least to burn for them. They are no longer a unique human being. They are simply kindling to give you something that you need, something that you desire. You see, Jesus is concerned throughout the Sermon on the Mount, throughout his life, throughout his ministry and who he is and his heart, his character, and that we see in the Sermon on the Mount is he has deep concerns for human beings and their valuation. All of these commands, all of his teaching, they're other honoring and they're other protecting. He goes back to the spirit of the law at the beginning when the Old Testament law was given about adultery. The spirit of it was to care so deeply for other people. But over time, we know we find loopholes in everything. We want to be able to know the exact letter of the law. We miss the spirit so often. We want to sort of work around that. I'm watching this with my kids now, right? They try to find every little way around it. Like, you didn't say I couldn't watch TV from six to seven. You just said you couldn't watch TV, right? They want to find all the ways and we do it all the time in our life. And the same thing was happening with this. I think what reminds me so often in studying this is we talk about the good old days, right? Like I hear my parents talk about that. I started, I've gotten to the point where you say that, but I don't believe that there were ever any good old days. Things have always been hard because these commands given here in, in the Sermon on the Mount were 2,000 years ago. And obviously there were problems then, but these were 2,000 years before that. And there were problems then since the fall, 
life has been broken. It has always been hard, and we have always lived outside of it. We have always tried to find other ways to live. And God has known that, and he has been trying to drive us back to him, trying to drive us to a new way of life. Anger, like lust, happens. And in both cases, it's the will to continue to sustain it that is challenged. So where are you looking? And I know this is written to men in here, and I think there is a high call to that for us because so often that's where it starts with our eyes and what happens there and the ways that we try to take possession. And I think it is a high call to men and clearly in that, but it's not just men. And it's not just images and it's not just looking at people. You see our eyes take in the images. One of the fascinating things as you study the eyes, the eyes take in the images, but it is our minds that then process the images, the eyes are the gateway, but the mind is the one that be, is able to process and take them in. They work together. And it's what you do with the input that matters because fantasies are a big part of this as well. The lust and the burning, the, the ways that we use our mind to be able to dream up these things that are out there. And, and we look and we stare, we possess and we fantasize often as an escape. It's oftentimes that we aren't satisfied with what we have and we take things that we don't have that aren't ours instead of enjoying what we have right in front of us. And after Jesus resets the bar so high that um, one, one commentator that I read in the midst of it said, if the whole thing about anger didn't cut you, this part should slay you because it's every one of us, because every one of us struggles with this. After he says that the bar so high, he says, take decisive action. One of the interesting things in the command so often is take decisive action. Don't wait. Don't linger. The pain is so much more if you don't deal with it now. Take action now. I care about you so much. I want you to do it now so that you don't have to live with the pain of it. And he doesn't recommend a Band-Aid to get through this. He asks for surgery. He says, it's better to gouge out your eyes. It's better to cut off a part of you than to limp and to go into hell because of the things that are holding you back. He says to take dramatic action to remove the bondage to our eyes and our minds and our fantasies, to be set free from that. I don't know what that is for you. I know for all of us, as we hear this, all of us have a different way of processing this. We all hear it, and, and, and you know what it is. You know what that thing is that trips you up. Every one of us has it. And so what do you need to do? Maybe, maybe for some of you, you need to get rid of the internet. And I know that seems like surgery because we depend on it so much, but maybe it doesn't need to be where you are. I remember John Parker, our lead pastor, telling a story one day of a young man who'd come into his office that was clearly struggling with the internet and the images and the videos that were there and the things going on in his life. And as they were talking about it, John is a pragmatist, which I love about him. And sometimes it's also quite challenging in my life, but, um, but I love that he gets to the point because he just sort of looked at the, the young man. He said, well, why don't you get rid of your computer and the internet? Right, Get rid of the source, get rid of the problem. And he said it was just the saddest thing because this young man just couldn't do it. He's like, well, I, 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 can't, I can't live without that. And I pictured the rich young ruler as he came to Jesus and he said, well, I've done all these things. And Jesus says, well, now give up your riches. And he walked away. And I've always pictured that scene of the man just with his head low. He couldn't give up the thing that he held so tightly to. And I picture the sadness when John tells that story. It seems so easy, the thing that could have changed this young man's life. Because there are, all of us have these things that are too much for us to give up. We all have these things we cling too tightly to. Maybe, maybe for you, it's that you don't want to have a flip phone because you know if you don't have a smartphone, 
people will look at you and say, why, why, why don't you have a phone? Where, where is the real phone, right? You'll feel silly with it. Maybe you can't give up that thing that's with you all the time that's continually holding you down. Maybe the thing that's too hard for you to give up is watching TV shows or movies because you can't keep up with the conversations at work or because it, it forces you to admit that you can't deal with it, that you're not strong enough to go through it, even though it's leading you down a path of darkness. And I know these are hard because we think, well, I, I can master it. I can white knuckle through these things. I can just make it happen. But in reality, you know, you know where every one of those times ends up leading you. Maybe for you, you need to stop hanging out where she is or where he is. Maybe you need to not go to that after work party that you know every time that you go to, you guys end up talking with one another. You end up on one side of the bar. You get a couple drinks too far in. Maybe you need to stop spending time with that person at work that just makes you feel really good, that fulfills all of these things. And it's not just work, even though you keep trying to tell yourself that. You keep trying to tell yourself, oh, this is, just, this is just work that we're doing. You know there's a piece of your soul that's being fed in the middle of it, and you're walking outside of it. The bar is so high. And maybe the thing that's too much is maybe you need to not go to that after work networking party because in your head, it's all for your career, right? This is all to move me down the field, but you know what happens when you go. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's to stop doing something and to take decisive action, but maybe, maybe in the same way, you need to take positive motion as well. Maybe you need to take actions in the positive to change your life. Maybe you need to find community. You need to find some people that you can actually be honest with and to walk through life with, that you can be straight up with everything going on in your life. For some of you, that might be regroup. Next week, Kaylee Newkirk is gonna be sharing across all of our campuses about the hope and vision of regroup. Maybe when you hear that word or maybe just when you see that sermon, if something starts stirring in you, take the step, take decisive action towards something good. Maybe you need to get into a connect group. Maybe it's just needing to be in a constant and continual place where you can trust another person. Maybe it's just to find a person to be honest with, to be really straight up with them. I, I had a friend text me yesterday and I just so appreciated that there's a group of us that can really tell each other, hey, uh, I just need you to be praying for me. I just, I, I need to let you know I'm committed to this and I'm not gonna like waver from this thing that I decided to do or not to do. And it just means so much that there are people in my life. And, and if there's not people in your life that you can talk with like that, maybe you need to find one. Because in all of this, there's not just the negative of what will happen, but there's also a clear reward. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. See, these commands are often tied back into the Beatitudes that were there. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Our eyes, again, they will see. And then it amazing how the eyes are tied once again back into this great hope and reward. I love that because we know the pain that's there, but we also can see that there is a clear reward if we move towards something that we will see God. A couple of weeks ago, we get to hear that we could be children of God, that we can see God. These are incredible promises that God makes to us. This is all really hard. And I just want to acknowledge that. And it gets harder, if in case you were wondering. Um, I really appreciated last time I kind of mentioned at the end of the Anger and Enemies one, if you were kind of working through it or you try some of it out to like pass things along. And I super appreciated someone grabbed me in the lobby after that sermon and said, you know, I don't like that passage. I'm like, well, tell me some more. She's like, I don't like the idea of having to be nice to people that aren't nice to me. I don't like the idea of praying for my enemies. That stinks. That, that is hard stuff. And I agree. I get it. This is not easy. None of this is easy. 
but I have appreciated having some time to sit in it. Because when you first hear it, 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 it raises the hair on your neck as it should, and it works on you as it should, and it cuts as it should. But if you understand the heart of God behind it, it changes everything. Maverick fell down the other day. He's my three-year-old son, and you know he loves his scooter right now, but he falls all the time, and they get their scraped up knees. And the thing you would think, I, I'm killing them when I'm cleaning out the cuts and scrapes they get, right? If you've ever had to do that for a kid, this, the constant yelling that happens, and, and, and you know you're doing something so helpful for them, but in the moment, you're just causing them pain, and it's awful. And I don't love doing that because I know his reaction, and he doesn't love me doing it. But I do it because I love him, I do it because I know it's what's best for him. I know if we clean out the wound, it will be better for him in the long run. And if we dress it well, it'll prevent infections from setting in. I'm not punishing him. I'm caring for him. And just as God cares for us when he cleans our wounds, as he exposes our brokenness, as he cleanses us in the midst of these commands and these hopes that he has for us, because God cares about you. He cares about us so deeply. And he cares about how we care for each other and he knows the pain our brokenness causes ourselves to those around us. Kaylee often says in the midst of her regroup teaching that neither our, our obedience nor our disobedience affects only us. Every action and reaction affects so much more and so much of it affects generations down the line. And he wants to help us avoid the pain and brokenness. As I read the commands, not only does it expose us, but there is a deep hope if we could live them, if we could listen, if we can follow them, we could actually avoid some of the pain. This has been here for a long time. And it's his deep hope that we would be able to move towards something more beautiful as well. And God thinks very highly of marriage. In this next passage, we see it. And he thinks so much more highly of it than most of us do. Because the goal of this next command is the lifelong love of marriage partners. Of the six commands that he gives in this section, two of them are about marriage and how we treat people in the midst of this. A third of the commands are in this marriage relationship or in how we deal with those who are married. And they're tied together. Because in the first one, this idea of lust, of staring, of ownership, it's the first step of breaking the marriage covenant, whether you are married or not, whether you are there or not, you're taking something that isn't yours. But the second step is the physical act of breaking it. And so he continues on in verses 5, 31 through 32. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The pattern is here again. There was an Old Testament law that was given, and it was a very good law. It says, you have, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. It's very interesting. Studying it, all of these Old Testament laws were given, were in response, were in protection of people at the time. Men were leaving their wives for no reason whatsoever. They would just walk away, and it was happening time and time again, which would leave the wives exposed, would leave them without any legal recourse, would leave them without property, would leave them in destitution so often. And so God said, no, here's a great law. Here's a way to protect women. You have to have a certificate. There has to be a legal proceeding to be able to make this happen. And so this was a high bar that was set at the time. But again, in the pattern that happens, when the letter of the law is there, we try to find ways around it. And so people were getting out of it too easily. They were coming up with this. And so the law is put there to protect. But then God expands it in this. 
And he takes marriage and this commitment to a whole new level because God has an extremely high view of marriage. He, he wants it forever. He knows the deep, deep pain that causes when it's broken. He knows the deep, deep hope that is there when it stays together. He knows that if statistics are true, that 50% of this room, if not more, have either been divorced and remarried or in the process or, or, the, or have been um, a piece of it, whether it's your parents or your grandparents, somewhere in a close proximity to you. And he knows the position that it puts people in and he knows the pain that it causes. He knows the questions kids have to ask in the middle. He knows the pain that's there and he wants us to fully understand the gravity of it. But it's not to make us feel bad. And I think that's where we can get the commands wrong sometimes. That may be the transitional emotion, but it is not the destination emotion. His destination in all of these is back to him. His destination is to repentance. It is back to grace. It is back to a loving Jesus. Because if you understand Jesus, if you understand the Jesus we've been talking about throughout this year, you understand his deep, deep love for you. It is not a shallow love that is based on bringing things. It is a love that went to a cross. It is a love that is so deep that is welcoming in every part. If you see his heart for the broken, you understand that what he wants more than anything is to bring us back home. Though the command is stark, the grace is real. And if you are here today, you're divorced or remarried, you're in the process, and you hear this and you think, is this, is this me? Is this aimed at me? Is this to make me feel bad? Is to break me? I, again, I want you to hear so truly, I believe that this is to drive us back to the poverty of spirit, to understand who and whose we are, to understand that God's love for us is so great that we need to be under him. It's back to the grace that Jesus offers because it's the same grace that's offered to those who are married and in the midst of it and struggling, and they're struggling with their lusts and their desires that are leading them outside of their marriages. It's, it's, it's to those who are fighting through it to try to keep their marriages there. It's for those who are single and not yet there. It's the same grace that is offered to every single person in this room that hears any of this and goes, that's me. I'm in the midst of this too. My eyes lead me astray and my fantasies go and all of these things. It is the same grace that's offered to us in every stage of life. What do you need to do? Do you need to stop doing something or get away from someone that's tripping you up? Do you need to step into community and be honest about your story with other people? Do you need to repent? Do you need to ask forgiveness? Do you need to be so honest with yourself that you'll go back to Jesus instead of letting the shame and the guilt keep you far from him to let it actually take a step towards him, maybe for the first time ever? Do you need to re-up on your marriage and put your eyes on the one you're committed to that God has brought together? In a couple of weeks, we're having um, another date night here. Like Mary, it's in your bulletins. Maybe that could be a step you take of spending some intentional time with one another. For all of us, every single one of us, we need to set our eyes on the cross. If we focus our eyes on Jesus, he will transform us. A, a prayer that I pray quite often and that I try to remember to pray all the time, but I miss so often as well. But the prayer is, give me your eyes. Jesus, give me your eyes. It's a prayer that I would pray every time that I would step on a high school campus as a young life leader. It's a prayer that I try to pray every morning when I come into the church, every time that I step into the world of other people. Because when I remember, and when I pray that prayer, he almost always does give me those eyes. 
because I noticed someone that I wouldn't have. Someone stands out that I would have never noticed, that my eyes would have gone right over before. I sometimes believe that I actually get to see people with the eyes that he has for them. Eyes that see beauty in the right way. Eyes that see broken hearts and desire to draw close to them instead of walking away from pain. Eyes that see my kids and the way he sees them and the hope he has for them. Eyes that see my wife in the ways that he wants me to see her. And just as often, if not more so, I mess up. I forget. And it puts me back to my deep need for him. It brings me back to grace. It brings me back to reminding me that I need to understand where I am with him, that I fall, that I am broken. And it drives me back to the table 